Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm excited to welcome guests to the show, Chris Brahma and JB Marin. Chris and JB have been working together in the realm of sprinting and injury risk factors. Chris is a consultant physiotherapist and researcher specializing in biomechanics as it relates to injury prevention. JB Marin is a world-leading researcher in the world of sprint performance and biomechanics with over 15 years of sports science experience, and he's been a multi-time guest on this show. Chris and JB, for the episode today, will get into the complexities of sprinting, uh, sprinting as it relates to injury risk and those injury risk factors, and this particularly revolves around hamstring strains. We'll be talking about force velocity profiling, elements of fatigue in sprinting, uh, rotational factors in sprinting, and where the rotational world of analysis and observation is going from a data point perspective. Uh, this and much more on the show today. And it was really great talking to these guys. These guys are on the leading edge of research and data collection with sprinting as it pertains to those injury risk factors. And it was great having them on the show. Before we get to the show, I wanted to highlight two of this show's sponsors. The first is the Plyomat. If you're looking for a jump training or testing system, then the Plyomat is an effective and affordable solution. With the Plyomat, you can link uh, not just one, but multiple mats together. So whether it's uh, gathering counter movement jumps, standing reactive strength indicators, or doing things like bounding hurdle hops, where you have mats at both the takeoff and landing the Plyomat is an awesome training solution, and you can check them out at plyomat.net. Our second sponsor is Team Builder, and if you're looking for a training portal that can get your workouts to athletes either online or in person, Team Builder is a highly recommended system, and you can check them out at teambuilder.com. That's T-E-A-M-B-U-I-L-D-R.com. All right, that being said, let's get on to the show. Chris, JB, welcome to the show. It's great to have you guys on. I'm excited for this discussion today. And let's start out by if you guys want to give a very quick update of basically what you've been up to or what your main research interests have been uh, over the last couple of years. I know we'll be getting into running a lot of running mechanics and uh, injury prevention and those kind of things. But just with an overview, starting with some main interests that you have been up to more recently. Okay, I'll go first. Yeah, so um, thanks, Joel. Thanks for having us on. Um, so I guess from my perspective, like uh, my work is a combination of like applied setting, uh, physiotherapy and biomechanics, uh, along with our research. And our research is generally around the clinical uh, use of biomechanics, primarily for like running related injuries. And so what we basically do on a day to day basis is we utilize 3D biomechanical technology to try and look at different running injuries. So we're looking at hamstrings. We're looking in team sports as well. So we look a bit about ACL injuries and then we work a lot with endurance runners too. So, you know, all sorts of different things there, Achilles tendinopathy, uh, Achilles ruptures, patellofemoral pain. And some of our recent work has then been more around trying to develop and, and take what we've been doing from a 3D perspective and trying to apply it a little bit more into infield methods so that practitioners can have a bit of uh, more user-friendly methods. Uh, so the current work we're doing, I think you might have come across our recent paper on hamstring strain injuries uh, with myself, JP, Jordan, and um, Tom DeSantos. Um, so what we're currently working on is trying to um, look at infield assessment methods for hamstring strain injuries and biomechanics related to that. And, you know, find ways that we can basically take what we do from a 3D perspective in the lab around injury and performance and apply this to infield science. 
Yeah, so this is the, the connection we have uh, recently for, for uh, the research I am uh, leading here and doing here. Um, we are more on the, on the sprint performance, sprint acceleration performance side of things initially and uh which includes also as as uh, chris said some uh, in-field method yeah transitioning or taking the lab to the field and uh and checking things from a training perspective what is the uh, the most efficient way to train people to improve acceleration uh, performance and then we've transitioned and connected with some uh, medical doctors and physiotherapists towards uh, hamstring injuries just because over the last you know 10 years or 15 years We've observed that the, the hamstrings were involved in both the propulsion mechanics and in, 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 in the injury. So there has been like a, a meeting point where we wanted to also study that from an injury perspective. So try to connect uh, sprint mechanics, how it's measured in the lab, but also in field conditions to uh, hamstring injuries. Yeah, with the, it seems like it's two different ends of the spec or not different, but, um, just two poles of the same thing, basically. And I'd imagine within those, it helps you guys to paint that bigger picture from both the injury side and the performance side. And there's probably a lot of like little connections that can happen with uh, coming at the same thing from different ends. Um, I'd be curious to ask you guys about those data points then. So um, I think with a lot of these things, it's it, it's a lot more complex often than people think it is. I, I know it, it can be simple to get it down to a few key things, but what um, what are the main aspects you guys are looking at in terms of running mechanics and injury? So, uh, what connections are being made in terms of, of what's seeing on the field? And, um, I guess some people would say too, can we predict injuries based off running mechanics in team sport? So maybe I'll have that question as well, uh, in there for you. Um, yeah, based off of the latest data, what are the big factors that you're seeing in, um, running mechanics that can be recorded and then, uh, what's happening from an injury rate perspective? Yeah. Well, you know, I think first of all, with that question, you started out with the um, how do running mechanics relate to injury development, and do running mechanics overall influence injury development? Well, I mean, for me, I think if we break it down and really go back to sort of the theories of the majority of of running related injuries, um, is that whether or not it's acute injury or a fatigue related injury or an overuse injury. The, the theory behind why those occur is usually on a simplistic basis is that the applied stress or strain that occurs through mechanics exceeds the, the, the demands of the, the tissue or just exceeds what that tissue is capable of dealing with. So, you know, from a, a, as a simple acute injury perspective, if the applied mechanical loads exceed the ultimate tensile strain at tolerance of that particular tissue, you get an acute related injury. So we see that within hamstrings. You see that within ACLs, but not only acute related injuries, if you think if somebody has mechanics that influence the, the, the overall stress or strain on a tissue, ultimately if that's applied over repeated loading bouts, what you're going to get is, is a cumulative fatigue that will occur on a tissue. And as that tissue fatigues, it will you know, start to be less capable of tolerating repeat stress. So then you get like a, an acute injury on a fatigued tissue. Or if you look at overuse injuries, it's that that cumulative micro trauma that occurs. Um, so most running related injuries are always about this balance between stress and strain that's applied to a tissue and its ability to tolerate it. So it makes sense from a theoretical uh, standpoint. Um, but also if you actually look from a scientific standpoint as well, there's like posts of, and or reams and reams of papers that show that mechanics do lead 
to the development of injuries, whether or not that's hamstring strain injuries, ACLs, uh, overuse injuries and endurance running. Um, there's lots of evidence to show it, both from perspective studies and retrospective studies. And that is definitely something that we uh, see as well, is that from an, you know, an applied-based setting, we will often see that these people and these individuals who have recurrent injuries or experience injuries at that particular moment in time, they demonstrate different mechanical features compared to other individuals. So regardless of how good their tissue qualities are or how strong they are, we're seeing time and time again from both a research and applied sense that mechanics are seen to be associated with injury development. Yeah, to me, the, to, add, to add a bit, um, the idea is that um, there, there's a very simple, you know, heuristic in, in, in sports-related injuries is that something happened where your system was not able to, f to withstand the amount of mechanical strain that, that your system had to face. And so sometimes there's absolutely nothing you can do. Like you get a hit, you get to know some trauma types of injuries. There's nothing you can do. You, you have a, a forward of, in rugby that, that falls on your shoulders and, and everything is stretched. Nothing you can do. But sometimes there is a tilt between your capacity and your strain that is favorable and that is manageable. And the idea is that the most of the prevention literature so far has interpreted that in a way that was very, very capacity focused. We, you want to face injuries, you have that strain, you need to increase capacity. And so most of the time that was your strength overall. And we, we realized that mechanically speaking, there's also a way that you can move, that you can you know, play your sport, run, exercise, in a way that you can reduce the amount of strain. So for the same level of capacity, maybe your gesture, your technique will allow a lower strain. And there is maybe something we can do. So we are not uh, talking much about directly the injury risk, but first about the level of strain. And then all things equal, and you know, this is big to say injury-wise, all things equal, because mm -hmm. all things are never equal. But still, all things equal, if you have the same capacity and you can play your sport and, and, and move you, you, the way you need to move with less mechanical strain, then maybe you're tilting the balance overall in a positive way. So we, we don't say we need to, you know, uh, zoom out and not focus on capacity anymore. Yes, you need to be robust. You need to be strong to face the demands of many explosive sports. But there's also something to consider is, okay, what's the level of mechanical strain, acute or long-term? And can I, can, I, can I reduce it? You know, so that's, that's the main idea. Yeah, so within that, uh, and it does, it seems to me, looking at all the pieces, it's always like the easiest piece. I mean, I know the data and GPS is complex, <laughs> but if you can just get a number and say, well, this workload is too much, or that's a pretty simple, there's not as many moving parts once you actually have the workload number, I feel like, compared to running mechanics and watching people run and move and the nuances of how locomotion is produced. As I see it, that is a little bit more complex in some ways. Um, yeah, uh, what do you have? Yeah. I, I might start with this one because I, we very simply define that with colleague as exactly what you said as the macroscopic strain, mm -hmm. which means my playing hours, my high speed running hours or meters and so on. That's my macroscopic strain. And then for the same level of macroscopic strain, let's say that my week as a football rugby player is, let's say, 200 meters 
at more than 90% of my top speed, which is a pretty simple metric to get. I can have the very same 200 meters and have a different microscopic strain because my body and my, you know, my lever arms, all the things maybe we will discuss afterwards, puts a different level of microscopic strain on my tissues and especially, for example, my hamstrings. So it means that you need to, you need to consider both the level of strain overall and also the level of strain within the system of the, of the players. And sometimes you get some injuries where the level of macroscopic load is not that high, or at least, you know, you feel it's well managed, you know, not too much, not, not, not too low, and there's still, there's still an issue. So I think this is a good way to, to figure things out. One is related to the training load, the content, and, and the high-speed content. The other one is uh, related to the, you know, the kinetics and the running pattern. You know, just just to add to what um, JV was saying there about like the the look at the into the microscopic aspects and the macroscopic aspects. I think very commonly in in applied settings, people um, I guess it's a lot easier for people to to assess and monitor the macroscopic aspects of things. Whereas if you to like look into the microscopic thing you, uh, aspects, you have to take a step back and a bit more of an individualized profiling approach to each individual that you work with. Like a GPS metric or quick Nordboard metrics are very, very quick and easy for you to just get like gross measures and assessments on an entire squad and just a, a database that appears. But to add that and contextualize that along with like individual mechanics, individual structural factors, um, individual like changes that occur due to fatigue, these often become a little bit more challenging for us to measure, which I think causes some practitioners and clinicians to shy away from doing it and just stick back to like what is what is safe. And so then you start to get the the a lot more focus in on that, and then people um, sort of fixate on those macroscopic elements. So just to give you like a just a bit a more of an example on that is like if if you think of the the mechanical argument, there's always long been an argument that mechanics. Uh, over strength don't really matter when it comes to hamstring strain injuries and there's not the people might say there's not enough scientific evidence for that but the reality is if you look out there you know at the way in which we assess these things so for biomechanics in particular it's quite challenging for us to assess and um, so if you think of like if you look at the prospective literature that's been done i think there's only like four or five studies that have been done on uh, mechanics and hamstring strain injuries but each one of them tends to find something Yet using macroscopic elements like a, a, a you know strength-based measures is really quick, easy to do. I think from my count, there's more than thirty papers that have done that. So I think what happens then is because methods are more complex to assess and to contextualize this as part of a whole system approach, people look at just big macroscopic things and try to like. I, I think sometimes we just shy away from them. And also because that, that might be a transition to the, to the work that Chris has started. Also because when you assess my, you know, my, my hamstring strength, you have two or three ways to do it. And you have two or three main variables that, that's discrete numbers. When you ask me to run all out, all, uh, you know, uh, all outs at my maximum speed and you put a couple of cameras, you're, you're quickly going to end up with 50 variables. Mm. And so that, that's much more challenging to, to, to get we, we the brain thinks with one number from zero to ten or zero to a uh, hundred and that's it. And uh, sprint mechanics is very very 
you know, it's you have different ways to to run very fast. Yeah, oh, for sure. And that's something I'm excited to get into just because I think with sprint mechanics, it's the easiest, the way, like JB, you mentioned heuristics, the easiest is for the human brain just to be like, all right, well, uh, run tall, high knees, you know, heel up, knee up, toe up, like the, the easiest way to make things simple and make sense. But there's certainly more complexity there. And I know we'll be talking about the 3D, Chris, you mentioned the 3D piece as well. And like, now you're stacking on another axis to go through. Um, and it is a lot to go through that complexity, especially with um, yeah, just like complicated versus even complex situations. Uh, within that, uh, I'd be curious, within all that, uh, I am curious, like the research that has been done uh, within the actual mechanics, what are some of the key things that were, are being looked at, there's data for, uh, that might say, hey, this is something that definitively, if someone's displaying this tendency on the field, uh, like heel striking, uh, anterior pelvic tilt and loss of posture, like those kind of things. What things are you finding uh, from that perspective? If you want to go into 3D too, you can. Uh, <laughs> I figure maybe starting with more of the, you know, the things that people are more familiar with or the stuff in the, the, that, that I think has been more common, but feel free to take that wherever you like. I'm curious what the research and what you guys are finding um, from data points that are showing uh, leading to the injury risk factors. Yeah, I think, so, so for me, whenever I think like, mechanics and the relationship to to injury especially when it comes from a research standpoint i think there's like a, a layer that we or a level we have to go through really to or to think about so for me firstly there needs to be sort of like a theoretical basis for why a mechanical feature would uh, influence like tissue stress so it needs to like make biological plausibilities or to, it needs to be biologically plausible first of all um, and if we look at the, you know, the literature or we, we look at these theories, there's a lot of um, uh, theories that make sense of why certain mechanical features would influence tissue stress. And then from a research sense, we've got quite a nice amount and, and body of research. Uh, you know, I know JB has been involved with some of your and Nadiguchi has done a lot of fantastic work that is showing that there's strong mechanistic link, uh, links with um, certain biomechanical features and tissue stress and strain. Um, and then that final piece in that puzzle is like having those associations when we've got direct links to that mechanical feature um, being associated with future future injury. Now, um, those things all need to take place. We've got lots of theories. We've got lots of mechanistic links. So it's, it's, there's this biological plausibility that mechanics are stress. But we need a bit more work in terms of the, the uh, proving it's linked to injury. But what we know and what does seem to be proved to injury is we've got evidence that's showing associations between anterior pelvic tilt in particular and hamstring tissue uh, strains. So mechanistically, is like the work of Nakamura, um, which they did some really cool work in the past where they do they use like uh, shear wave elastography to look at the passive tension within the biceps femoris and other hamstrings, um, and then they would manipulate the anterior pelvic tilt position. And in that paper in particular, they found like just a seven degree increase in anterior pelvic tilt, increased the passive tension of the biceps femoris by around 35%. Similarly, we've got some modeling studies from like Elizabeth Tumanoff and, and, and her group that showed backside mechanics or, or I guess like the trailing limb hip flexors can influence strain on that lead limb uh, biceps femoris by around, I think it was around greater than 25 millimeters. So we've got these mechanistic links there, and then you know, Joke Schumann's and, and his group of, of them found greater anterior pelvic tilt during the swing phase of running. 
is associated with the future development of hamstring strain injuries in soccer players. So you've got that nice little link there. And it, it, you, we've seen that with quite a few different elements. I think there's like look, health, altered lumbar pelvic control, so an inability to coordinate movement of the trunk and pelvis is linked to injury development, pelvic tilt, um, even some of the, some stuff around overstrived uh, mechanical patterns makes has a, a you know an obvious mechanistic link to hamstring strain injury. And from my perspective, when I mean, what we do is on a day to day basis is we'll bring people into the lab um, who have chronic and recurrent hamstring strain injuries and look at them run so we can quantify what they're doing. And it's one of the common features that we see is these these people who people who will overstride, increase the load on the hip extensors. And the demand on the hip extensors, they bypass the ankle, so they're less reactive off the ground. And, and this can result in, well, not only like an acute injury, but there's, there's lots of ways that that could contribute to, to fatigue over time and, and hamstring uh, tissue itself. Um, so there's lots of these different features that are out there um, and lots of links in the literature. Um, so, yeah, plenty out there, really. And I guess like JB's got some really good stuff that they've um, done in terms of kinetic parameters and profiling as well. I think even using simple infield me methods, um, such as the um, Pierre Zamazino's um, force velocity profiling, again, that's nicely been shown to influence um, or be associated with future injury. Yeah, the idea of the the idea of the kinetic. So, so we we need to make the difference between the kinetics, that is the force output of the system when you when you run, you accelerate. And the kinematics that refers to the to the segment motion, and both result from and influence the muscles' uh, stress and strain, because it means that if you want to, let's say that you want to to generate a very high impulse on the ground, you need very high muscle forces, very high you know hip extensors, plantar flexion. There's been very clear research on that, and at the same time. If you generate a lot of force onto the ground, it means that your level of, of force output was high. And so in terms of kinematics, the segments movement directly influence the tension and the length, so the strain in the in the in the muscle tendons. And so both are related. And um, what we saw, for example, with the kinetics was that when people after a hamstring injury, so retrospectively, the consequence of a hamstring injury was that their hip extension function was a bit impaired. And so their maximum force output onto the ground when accelerating was impaired as well, clearly, after even after rehab. And so we went to a prospective approach just by saying that this macroscopic factor of how much force output I can generate because the hamstrings are really involved a lot in that force output could be an indirect marker of the overall you know, power capacity of my, of my system of, of hip extension. And if this is, let's say, facing, you know, this capacity strain imbalance, maybe my force output onto the ground will be impaired. And this is what we observed when, when, when prospectively scanning that force output in sprinting over the season in, in football players, but also in rugby players, we've seen that the players who had a drop in that maximum force output capability of linear sprinting had a higher risk of you know, getting a, a sprint-related hamstring strain in the weeks or months after the test. And so this is for the kinetic parts. And for the kinematics, there are so many kinematic variables that you can assess that I guess, and, and Chris will explain the objective of this uh, of this score is, is trying to define. We need to simplify 
high things. And we need to go to the big rocks. And in my opinion, there are something like five or six big rocks. Big rocks means, as, as Chris said, there's either a very strong anatomical, you know, functional anatomical theory relating and, and generating that big rock or some evidence in the research confirming that's a big rock. So trunkling, trunkling is one, uh, trunk uh, um, rotation is one and so on. All the, all the movements that lead to a higher strain in your hamstrings. With the, I like how you bring up the macro because it to me I get this picture of like it's like a magnifying glass, you know, and and you can move the magnifying glass around to and it's like a, okay this is a problem area, but now that you find it, there might be other little things under that magnifying glass that now you have to figure out more to really do do full diligence. It's a puzzle <clears throat> because I have seen some players and now I, I work a lot now with players directly and, and and trying to help staffs you know identify things. Uh, go to the simple big rocks and so on. And you have some players with pretty low number of red flags on their kinematics, but a good number of red flags on their kinetics and their strength. And you have players who have the opposite. They are strong. They have a good capacity of maximum force. They have a good force production in sprinting. So a good specific force, you know, uh, uh, output. And their kinematics have a high number of red flags. And then very interestingly, in my experience at least, the players who have a very low number of red flags, uh, you know, all along this spectrum, uh, they are pretty safe sprint-wise. And, and, and to me, it makes total sense. So, of course, it's not, you know, scientific evidence, but it's accumulating uh, uh, field evidence, definitely. Yeah, the, the, the image I kind of get with that description, and I'm sure this isn't totally accurate, but I almost think of like a hill. If you could even think of like the bell curve of, um, you know, of norms and it's like being in the middle on the top of the hill, maybe you have decent, you know, decent force, decent mechanics, but you fall too far to the force side where you like, you rely on force, you're a forceful runner or the other side where you're just weak. <laughs> uh, maybe there could be, you know, that could be a different way of looking at it in some ways as well. Yeah, I think, I think that is definitely, you know, one way of looking at it, but I think what's really important for us as practitioners to try and um, uh, consider is the fact that, you know, if, if we just simply assess these singular things just as like tissue capacity, mm -hmm. uh, fitness, various other things, and, and, and fail to sort of contextualize that within what they do from a mechanical perspective, we'll often struggle to really understand why they get injured. So like JB was saying, you can have people that are really strong, right? And they fit within normative values for eccentric strength capabilities or muscle um, endurance capabilities, but they still get injured time and time again. Now, part of that would be because that applied strain based on their mechanics, so their, their kinematic features um, could be much greater. And how they deal with those kinematics from a, a, a kinetic perspective will then influence the load that's applied to a tissue. So for example, if you have somebody with poor kinematics that leads to um, different kinetics applied to that particular tissue, they can be as strong as they want. Um, or, you know, that level of strength might not be sufficient anymore to cope with those mechanical demands. And that's something that we see uh, time and time again. Um, like if I give you a classic example of like overstride run mechanics, from a 3D perspective, we, we delve into both the, the, kin uh, the kinematics and kinetics. 
So I can take two people with an overstride and see two complete different scenarios that happen as a result. So, you know, one player, uh, for example, might overstride and, and then have insufficient sort of force generating capabilities to cope with that. They might collapse more into anterior pelvic tilt and hip flexion, and that can apply a greater eccentric load to that particular tissue. Conversely, there might be someone who's got like really high levels of strength. They can cope with that at that moment in time. So they overstride, they generate force through the stance phase, and they keep going forward. But because of that overstride, the kinetics that are applied to that tissue can result in more force on that hamstring for each given stride. So over time, that can result in fatigue and overload to a particular tissue. So based on those mechanics, there's two different requirements on a muscle tissue. And if we just solely focus on strength and strength endurance and how that compares to normative data sets and don't look at this kinematic and kinetic picture we'll, we'll end up confused as to why they recurrently get injured because we're like oh strength value seem fine compared to everybody else but the demands on each stride during the run are completely different so i think it is really important for us to think about how we assess those factors as part of that overall assessment for red flags so you know that way you, you might be able to tick those particular boxes in a strength domain, but highlight big key winners, uh, I call them winners, of areas that are going to modify the load applied to a tissue when it comes to mechanics. Yeah. You, have to, you have to figure out how much the sprint, let's say, they run fast because sprinting is not necessarily running at top speed or close. So how much, but not only, then how they do that. And so we have like, when I work with athletes or with uh, Jordan, and so we have like a decision tree, you know, the, the factors that are here, the ones that we can modify, and we just, you know, check that quickly. It's, it's age, previous injuries, and then you go to mobility because sometimes it's a, the, the running technique, the running pattern is just, is ma mainly a mobility issue. You have poor ankle mobility that might relate to many, many of the variables in your stride pattern. And so sometimes you want to cue, you want to coach the stride pattern where you should in fact fix that ankle mobility issue. So then we have, of course, strength. Strength is a, is a factor, so you need to know that. And then you move to the kinetics and the kinematics, and you have a picture, and, you see, and, and of course, the macroscopic load, that is the overall management of the exposure. And you want to find the main, you know, the main factors that are maybe connected to the risk. And the funny thing is that once you have done that, most of the time, and this is to me a key variable, and this is a like it's not a fight, but I'm I'm struggling to explain that to coaches and staffs. Once you have identified that, you almost know nothing until you have the behavior under fatigue. Because sometimes mm -hmm. you have an athlete with their puzzle their running mechanics when they are fresh and this almost doesn't change under fatigue and on the same team with the same initial puzzle you will have some players who are totally different under fatigue and until you know that there's no way you can anticipate their behavior at the end of a game season you know intense period block of training and so on so I really, really uh, wish people assess everything we discuss now also in a fatigue state. And this is a challenge because by definition, to do that, you need to generate a specific fatigue state or you need to do the assessment 
in a specific fatigue state. And then the discussion with the staff becomes uh, challenging. On the level of supplements, Lost Empire Herbs has been my go-to for the last five years. As someone who's constantly observing nature in motion to help me understand movement better, so too do I draw from nature in my supplementation regime. If you want to check out some of my favorite supplements for energy, strength, and enhancing the total impact of your training regimen, uh, things such as Shiliagit, which has been well recommended by many strength coaches, the Phoenix Formula, which was my original Lost Empire Herbs supplement that really made me a believer in the power of herbalism, things like pine pollen, mushroom tinctures, and more, you can head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. There you can use the code JOEL15, that's joel one for 15% off your order. Definitely check out Lost Empire Herbs. They're an awesome company and will really help that total aspect of your performance training process. Yeah, fatigue is, it's an interesting piece because it, as you were talking before, I was, I was making a few notes. I don't even, my page is already filled up with notes. So I'm trying to figure out where this was from. Uh, but I was writing out like some of the factors and I was, this was um, an offshoot of the force velocity profile. I don't know if it was entirely related, but I was going to ask you about thoughts on yeah fatigue and stress, how that plays in. And then I've also heard even perception in the environment, how an athlete is perceiving the environment could possibly play a role in injury if they're not making decisions, if they make a decision, no, not quickly enough or something like that. I think that was more related to knee injuries. It was a conversation I had with Jeff Moyer and something I've talked with Darian Barr a lot about is just timing. Like if the timing and, and all this to say is I, it's hard to put like a, a number on, I guess you could just say athleticism, like the ability to move well based off whatever the state of the, you know, your body. If your body is in a certain state, you can adapt and problem solve in that state. And I think that's a little bit harder of a thing <laughs> to, to put a number on, if that makes sense. It's something that it's almost like a good athlete. And, and I, and this is just pure N of one, just from my own experience, I felt like I, I wasn't injured in sport often. And one thing I am good at is body like awareness, like, like doing like, even if it's like rolling on the ground, you know, sprint rhythms and bounding rhythm, like all that stuff has always come very naturally to me. And I, I wonder sometimes if that helped me to prevent injuries, like just to be able to sense and manage my own body well, regardless of, it, you know, the exact mechanics even. So, I, I imagine that would be something that's hard, you know, but maybe if you see people who do struggle when fatigue in general, if their mechanics fall off the rails, that's like a magnifying glass into that. You know, that's like, okay, here's a macro. <laughs> now what's going on under that? But I think that's something that's not as easy to quantify outright. Um, I mean... I think the the monitoring and watching the change of mechanics over time is something that is incredibly important because um, it, it, it allows you to then see how an athlete is going to respond in a variety of different situations and stimulus. So when that environment is a bit more chaotic, when they put under pressure from a performance perspective or when they're fatigued. Um, and I think from a uh, historical perspective, it's always been pretty challenging to just profile uh, biomechanics and movement patterns in general. And often there's like a lot of subjectivity in, in that, in terms of what people look at and what people see. So what we've tried to do from a research perspective is develop more in-field applied ways of assessing movement mechanics associated with injury. And the idea here is that then if we can have in-field methods of assessment you can, that you can easily apply, you can try and evaluate an, an athlete's uh, movement quality and patterns when they're exposed to all those different stimuli. So when the environment's a little bit more chaotic, uh, when they're under fatigue, 
And so what that might then allow you to do is, is identify if there's a specific situation where mechanics become a, a less optimal, and therefore you can direct those interventions to think, right, well, okay, we need to challenge movement patterns in that specific scenario, be it put the athlete under fatigue and, and teach them or challenge them to uh, maintain a particular technique, or do that with um, a variety of different like in, environmental stimuli. So I think those are like really important things to do that in team-based sports are often neglected. But yeah, as I say, I think the challenge has been how we assess that in field. And that's like the main thing that we've been trying to work on so that practitioners can challenge it across different contexts. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the, the idea of Chris of uh, building a, <clears throat> a composite score is, is very, very interesting because it's always, it's always challenging and risky, definitely, because you don't want to, to, to give you a, like a, a B, C, D, you know, type mm -hmm. of uh, grade because it's not that simple, but at some point you will, you will have to go there and to have a simple, but wrong, but still, uh, uh, information because the, 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 the good information is almost impossible to get. So you have two options. Either you just, you know, wait and do nothing or you try to refine a score you know, making aware about the limitations and everything. But still, if I am six or if I am one, there is definitely something different. And then the big, big, big issue will be to have people understand that if I am, let's say, six or one, that's just, you know, I am using just a Likert scale, one, five. Let's go. If I am one or five in a fresh state, it absolutely doesn't mean I'm going to be one or five in a fatigue state. And uh, this is a common mistake that we do. It's that we infer you know, the fatigue behavior and, and technique, whatever you want to put behind from the fresh state. And, and my experience is that something uh, really, really changed. And the change is very variable. We are not all changing the same. And uh, we had a, a study where we did a very simple 2D, simple but well done 2D kinematic study of, you know, repeated sprints, very basic. And we observed that on the football players tested, we had at least three very big different type of behaviors. Some people who almost didn't change their pattern and some people who changed in a way that is supposedly inducing a higher strain, which might seem logical, but also some people who changed in a way that might induce less strain. So is it a protective mechanism, whatever, but we had the two opposite changes. And so until you do that, it's not written on the face of your players or in their on their jersey, you know. So until you go there, there's no way you can accu accurately estimate things. But you need to know it because those who have a pattern that is drastically drifting towards more strain, when you add so the capacity is lower due to fatigue and the consequence of fatigue on the tissue itself, and the strain is higher, so their balance is is becoming very very dangerous, and you need to know that obviously. That's, it's so interesting that some players go the other direction. Like you said, some people get better and it would strike me that maybe those are the people, you know, they're, I'm sure there's different ways to go about how you define this, but they're more elastic. There's, they're good users of elastic energy. And it's almost like when the, the, you could say the frictional, the muscular pieces get taken out, they can run that like more, not, it's not just tendons, but that, you know, more of the elastic components of the machine, they're more adept at running that. And yeah, they, they are shifting something. And it's yeah. very interesting because there is not many studies doing that, you mm. know, inducing a high level of sprint-related fatigue to measure the kinematics. But I, in my experience, I am, I've been teaching this course for something like almost 15 years now. Every year, I have a group of 30 to 60 bachelor students 
and I have them through a 12 times 30 meters. So once in their life, they know what's a repeated sprintability test. And I know I don't film them and I don't study that, but I, I, I watch them very, very closely. And some really go towards, you know, more anterior tilt, more flexion in the trunk and so on, more overstriding. And some other ones go more upright and seem to, to, to run very differently in the opposite way. And, uh, you know, that's, that's one of the, uh, a mysterious part of things is that under fatigue, our body is adjusting, but we're not adjusting the same. So, yeah, even for, I, I know this isn't so much along the lines of injury, but I can't even help just in pure trainability. I think there's also just, just to say pure speed and athleticism outside of injury. I think that even gives some interesting thoughts because I've always, I think from a very just baseline perspective, it would be, all right, well, if you want to be fast, only do short sprints with maximal rest. You know what I'm saying? Like, well, what if looking at those people who actually got better under a little fatigue, more elastic, like those kind of things. And I say that as well, just one, seeing athletes who have responded that way and like looking at athletes who respond better with like more tempo sprints in track and field, for example, more stuff that's a little fatiguing, more elastic in nature and who does well with that and who doesn't do as well with that. And uh, it almost seems like it could be uh, multifactorial, both from a performance uh, as well as even an injury thought process there. Yeah, I mean, uh, personally, I think um, movement is massively multifactorial. So mm. whenever we try to contextualize why somebody moves in a way that they do, and, and in this particular case, like why they adopt a specific mechanical pattern under fatigue, I think there's often that interaction between, well, for me, when I, I try to understand movement, I try to break it down into like simple elements. And people who adopt um, patterns based on their, their structure, so what their natural structure wants them to do, off what their physical qualities are, um, and then off their learned like motor behaviors, so then like neuromuscular patterns and pathways that that cause them to to move in a specific way. So it may be that you know, in in some respects, that when we are under a fatigue state, we try to adopt the path of least resistance for us to keep maintaining a movement pattern. So we might adopt a movement to be able to keep recruiting specific tissues that are uh, more favorable for us to keep going. So perhaps the ones that are less fatigue resistant within us, or perhaps just increasing anterior pelvic tilt. So we get more elastic recoil of hip flexors, for example. Um, but I think what's like really interesting key in this, if we think those interaction between structure, func um, tissue qualities and neuromuscular qualities, what often we neglect as practitioners is actually teaching athletes what we're trying to look for as the end outcome of a movement pattern. So when they are in that fatigue state, they can then tap into what they know as a movement pattern that they want to adopt. And, you know, from an anecdotal perspective, if you, you look at like an Olympic Games final, right, and everybody fighting to the line in an 800 meter race when people are fatiguing, variety of different mechanical patterns will emerge. But certain people will manage to get to the line in the most technically efficient um, and kinematically and kinetically efficient way to get there. Um, and, you know, one of my personal thoughts is if we can teach athletes to understand what that efficient pattern is, or I say efficient, I say like the most performance advantageous pattern, um, you know, maybe that they can choose to try and keep consistency in that movement when they are in a, in a more of a challenge state. So. That's the bit that I think we miss from a movement perspective is actually getting people to understand what the output is we're looking for. Yeah, it makes me think about yeah. just, it yeah, makes me think sorry. a lot about the 400 in track and field for sure. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, JB, I did want to ask, I, I just mentioned this in the notes I'd taken, um, was you had talked about, and I know you've talked about this on a previous podcast at some point. Um, I'm not sure if it was the last one or the one before it, but like the using the force velocity profiling and seeing people who were producing less force at higher risk of injury. And I think about the macroscopic lens there and the different components of the force velocity profiling, like just the pure power versus the direction, like the DRF. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm curious if there's any... Uh, of the nuance of that like when you actually go into the force velocity is it both that they might lack or is it anything in particular once you're digging in that it's like okay this is the the main uh, contributor yeah so we, when we did so first in 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 most of our in all our retrospective studies the main variable that was uh, that was impaired after hamstring injury and, and rehabilitation was the force output okay so let's say that the, the maximum force side of the curve because when you look at the maximum running velocity, it was it was very close between uh, rehabbers and their teammates who hadn't been injured. Very, very close. So there was a, a huge gap in the initial part of the sprint, which makes sense because if you think about it in terms of, you know, horizontal force production and acceleration, this is the moment where the, the, for, the, the, the forward force output is the highest. Because when you run super fast, you still produce some horizontal force, but it's mostly directed, the, the, the ground reaction force is mostly directed vertically, and you have just a, a quick braking and pushing action, but you don't have a massive horizontal impulses at the beginning. And then th- that was the main factor. We didn't dig into the, the, is it the magnitude of the vector or the orientation? But in our prospective study, we tried and we add all these variables. And again, statistically, the only link that was well the only variable that was differentiating the, the players with an ongoing risk that was actually an injury in the weeks after or the months after the test, and those who uh, kept you know uh, playing safe throughout the season was that maximum force output. So it's definitely this the ability of your system to 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 push maximally when you initiate the sprint. There was no there was no link with maximum velocity initially. Our hypothesis was that if you're able to have a much higher running speed. So it, your maximum velocity is higher. Maybe you're able <laughs> to put yourself, your system uh, uh, at a higher risk of mechanical strain because it is not proportional, but it's, it's you know, exponentially going up with the speed. And so if you're a slow player, uh, uh, maybe you're at lower risk for that very reason. Because And, and this, this happens in players aging. Some players get old and get less and less muscle injuries also because their their maximum running speed gets gets lower but for the cohorts that we've tested they were you know mainly uh, young and so on and and mainly let's say homogeneous in terms of maximum speed uh, it, it was not statistically a factor but in in my experience and agne- anecdotal experience we have much more players uh with an ongoing risk when they are both very fast and very low on the maximum force uh, side of things. I have a an elite basketball player that that has developed her, her her sprinting skills and sprint power and performance. She was totally injury safe, and after one or two seasons of really putting her numbers of short accelerations, you know, uh, clearly elite level, she started to get some some muscle injuries. And I think that not many things have changed on her overall capacity, you know, but. She 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 basically changed the motor, and so she changed the strain, and and because she was more performance, she was putting her system against a higher strain for the very same level or capacity, and 
the the balance tilted uh, the wrong way. Yeah, that's really interesting. I I I know you probably answered it in the like you probably already answered this, but maybe if I could just ask you to uh, maybe frame this this a little bit in a different way. Is you mentioned those players like the injured return to play person and the the typical you know not injured they were getting like the same velocity but the return to play at a lower force. So my question would just be, and again, maybe you already said this, but how, what is the strategy by which that return to play player is making up the speed, if that makes sense, like absent of force? Like, I'd be curious of that. Like how, if that makes sense, like how are they clearing that gap? If now they have a reduced force output or reduced horizontal impulse or however you'd mentioned, like, what is the strategy now? Like, I'd be curious, like, I think about athletes as adaptable. It's like, okay, well, I'll pick a different strategy. And I'm sure, you know, it's complex too. There's a lot of, you know, you put 3D in there and, and different things. Um, oh. Yeah, I'm just curious your thoughts on that. So that's going to be mainly a macroscopic response. Uh, in the study where we were able to test players over time, repeatedly after rehab, we saw that just playing football and training for football uh, uh, adjusted the profile because two months after the first test, Basically, the profile was was back uh, as it, as as not as it was before because we didn't have the pre-injury data, but there they, they were no differences anymore. So, in terms of strategy, instead of letting time, you know, do the job, you can maybe anticipate that by adding to your rehab some more sprint-oriented work, but some sprint-oriented work that is targeting the entire spectrum, mm. not only the maximum running velocity but also the maximum running force output. And that might be connected to some resistance, uh, resisted works, and so on. So you, you just want to, to me, that's very interesting to, to target the entire spectrum uh, uh, from low speed, high force, to high speed, lower force uh, uh, in terms of horizontal force output. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. I mean, this probably is not... This isn't exactly the same way of saying it, but just another perspective would be people think of running frequency versus running length or something. And if you just frequencied it to get your speed, you know, I mean, it's probably not the same thing, but I know what you're saying. Like if you, you're relying almost so much on maybe the elastic, the spring static, you aren't getting any of the, the force like you'd get on a sled or resisted behind it. So maybe it's not the right example, but I was just trying to kind of draw it in a well, different parallel for people. It's a, it's a very good example. You, you think, and you need to do an analogy with the gym. Uh, uh, what do you need to load your system in a gym exercise? You need some loads. What do you need to load your sprint pattern? You need some loads. You cannot, you cannot increase the force output in a specific movement, be it a squat, a press, or a run, an accelerated run, without, without adding significant load. Yeah. I think when we, when, when we look at injured people from a 3D perspective, what you, what you start to learn is like people get very good at compensating. Mm-hmm. So they try to find a way to perform by utilizing structures mm-hmm. and different tissues, or, you know, from adjacent areas. And um, so you got then, then you've got this like performance injury paradox, really, where someone will learn to perform but still be at injury risk because they're not doing so in the most optimal way or the most efficient way. So I guess what JB is saying is you've got to be really specific in terms of how we target it, um, restoring tissue function for the particular performance. Yeah, that's what I was yeah. going to... Sorry, if I just let me say this real quick because I was that was the thing I was going to say is I would wonder if in that return to play group, if there was another strategy they were utilizing in the 3D, in the transverse plane to maybe get that, you know, that was subtly different or something like that as well. 
Not not in that study. In in that in that study we did with uh, Jordan Menigucha, we 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 really wanted to not intervene, you know, to not influence the normal pattern. But uh, in many clubs uh, who are now using this comprehensive approach, there is definitely an intervention that is trying to target the entire, basically the muscle itself and the function itself. And and a sprint acceleration goes from zero to maximum speed and from very high force output to lower force output. And if you want to have a comprehensive rehab, you need to target the entire spectrum. Otherwise, you know, something is going to miss at some point. Yeah. That that does make sense. With I mean, even just thinking of the force as, uh, yeah, just free sprinting versus something where there is resistance and strength, and just being able to work through the spectrum of that. Um, I did want to get a little bit into as we go through some of the three D things. Um, so I imagine there's more research, more work, more observation coming out from observing sprinting from the front and rear view, and uh, either from a injury prevention or a performance perspective. Um, either or. Uh, just curious what you guys are seeing there, uh, studying there, and what are some topics coming up on that on those lines of thought? Um, well, from my perspective, like we've got what we're trying to do at the moment is we've got lots of 3D data on um, uh, injured athletes, particularly like hamstrings is one of the, one of the things. But what we're trying to do is, and the current work that you will see come out is more of that infield 2D methods of assessment and how that relates to hamstring strain injury function. So while while I love 3D, right, and that's what I spend my day doing, um, and I think it gives us this really like detailed view of individual performers, I think we we definitely need to be able to take a lot of these concepts into field. So um, the work that you will see is our method that JB alluded to before or talked mentioned before, um, which is our uh, composite score that we're using to sort of quantify the overall quality of someone's sprint running mechanics and its association to to future injury development. And um, so, you know, one of those two papers is in review at the moment. And the other one is still like in, in final in data collection. But effectively, what we're finding is that we can use infield methods of quick assessments to get an overall um, idea of the quality of someone's running gait. And this is seeming to relate to injury development, um, which could be a nice way of us identifying people who we want to intervene with on a movement based perspective. Um, early on if we want to try and prevent injury. Um, so that's one of the things we're doing from a research perspective. But as I say, that's like 2D, not a 3D mm-hmm. perspective. So I'm, I'm quite keen on thinking like, look, I love 3D, but I also need to think how can we apply this more into the field? Uh, and I don't think from a methodological perspective, I don't think many of your uh, you know listeners and, and, and readers and understand how tough, complex mm-hmm. it is to do quality 3d motion capture you know people just say yes let's 3d it's crazy Mm -hmm. you want to have a 3d motion capture of someone running fast you will you will be able to measure only one or two steps or you have a huge camera set that's only one or two places in the world and for for two seconds of sprint you're gonna have hours of work Mm. And, and 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 so no it's not 3d or 2d it's it's two different words and my option is that we need to work to get that 2D approach in two different dimensions, complementary and, and, and you know, robust enough to identify things in field conditions. But we also need to work in, in our lab, and this is what we are going to start now in this, this winter, on some systems that would eventually allow some you know, easier and, and, and more direct 3D approaches. And uh, I, 
there's some markerless systems. Yeah. People are developing things with AI at my university now. There's a, um, um, a vision lab that is working on identifying segments and so on, but that's 10, 20 years from now. So 3D is a, yeah, it's, 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 it's a very, very, very cutting edge approach. Yeah, it's, I mean, um, it's like, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that one of the reasons why we see so limited work come out in terms of showing um, mechanics influence injury development is the time it takes to conduct an assessment. I mean, I first started playing with 3D back in 2010. I remember for one individual person, it would take me an entire day to process the data. And now we have it like pretty swift and quick, but still it's two hours for an individual assessment and can take multiple hours after that to, to process the data as well. So it's so, one of the big challenges. Yeah, and, and so people who are, you know, bashing studies with 3D kinematics and prospective cohorts of 20 guys and four injuries are totally wrong because they don't understand that this is already a huge feature in terms of measurement. Getting some players to spend hours at the lab, you know, getting their markers set and so on, warming up, running, then monitoring them down the season is, is a huge feat. It should be applauded, not mocked, definitely. And, um, and, and, and of course, when you want to have a club, you know, monitored over time or, you know, you need 20, 30 injuries to think correctly in terms of statistical power and so on. So if you want 30 injuries, you need to assess 200 players and, 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 and it's almost impossible. And of course, it's never going to be your, you know, uh, EPL club or your elite club. It's always going to be some, you know, lower level people because they can or they accept to in a, yeah, it's 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 definitely a, a challenge now. It seems like something that almost it, it would be exponential. Like as you're describing, it's like it's not just one and one; it's one times <laughs> a lot. If that, I mean, would it, is it kind of like that? I mean, not to necessarily get a bunch into the data collection process, but I am curious. Yes, but a it doesn't mean it cannot be done at some point, and b it doesn't mean. It is uh, 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 a reason for uh, not doing it or finding that not interesting. You know, sometimes what what counts cannot be counted. This is the the famous quote of uh, Einstein. So yeah, it doesn't it doesn't mean it doesn't make sense. It just means it's uh, super difficult to to assess correctly. Oh, for, yeah, for sure. I, I know for myself, watching just sprinting from the fr front and rear view, which in itself, if you're observation point is actually still kind of a 2d point from observation because now you're just watching the frontal plane in 2d in, in some sense so it's like that full 3d and that's just what intrigues me about the human coaching eye like a really well-trained coaching eye who watches like an athlete sprint past what they can gather versus data points you are watching the 3d in action but as you were talking jb about the the force deficit i was thinking about just even Julian Pinot is a strength coach who's been on this show and talks about internal and external torque chains, basically like all the torque that moves the body towards from the inside to the outside or the outside to the inside. And I just couldn't help but think, I wonder if there's something there, you know, but then to find actually go in and where you see the marker uh, change, that sounds like it is a lot. And so it'll be interesting once that data does start to become a little easier to manage. Yeah, sure. Sure. Uh, okay, so uh, just a couple of things left here. And uh, well, maybe these are a little bit different. And I know uh, I want to get to the foot first. Uh, JB, you've been talking about uh, pieces of the foot as it, it pertains to um, uh, just sprint performance, not so much maybe injury prevention. But I'm curious what you've been going into there, uh, like links with the foot and everything that, ha that has to do with sprint speed. 
Yeah, so the, the overall idea was to was to understand that the foot is the last the last point of con- it's the only point of contact between between yourself and the ground. So all the force you generate wherever it is is transmitted to the ground at the foot. So by definition, that's that's a, a point in the chain that's that's very likely important. And uh, we have designed at my lab uh, with a PhD student uh, some very specific devices to quantify the foot strength. Um, you know, directly or more directly than, than what was done. And we did two studies. One was a cross-sectional study in a high level people involved in, in, you know, very powerful sports, tennis, uh, basketball, football, and so on to see if there was some correlations between their foot strength capability and their, you know, accelerating, cutting, jumping uh, movements. And the second study that is ongoing now is an intervention study. So we wanted to see if improving the strength of the foot through a very specific intervention was also uh, improving some of these uh, performances so we are now in the in the core of the of the training study and the idea is that uh, in the correlation so the paper is uh, in uh, review now in the correlation paper we found some links between you know some very specific type of uh, foot strength and foot morphology and some some mechanical features of the of the acceleration or cutting movements and so on. Yeah. What um so in terms of like the performance, like any performance correlations, I mean I know the foot's been studied as being such a there the forces going through the ankle joint being so massive. Um you know anything any sort of training outcomes or thoughts that are coming out of that? So one of the main, and uh, I really um, encourage people uh, reading what, uh, so the name of the students is uh, Romain Tourillon. And uh, uh, he has already written some some pieces like in blogs or, and uh, the overall idea is that our foot strengthening protocol is a bit different from what you see in the literature. There has been some great foot strengthening studies showing some reduction in the in the running related injuries and so on. But here our protocol is really, really, really targeting some loading of the system and to tell you uh, uh, what we do we use some exercises where we really load the system it's not only just you know flexing extending the toes we have some loads and after some sessions uh, our our participants get dumps they get they get they get muscle pain just after just as when they do their very heavy lifts uh, at the gym so mm-hmm. it means that we have a significant overload of the muscle strength the foot muscle strength and i think that might be a big difference uh, with, with previous protocols. Gotcha. Yeah. So we're, we're typically a lot of it would be just more maybe general calf instead of the actual really digging into the, the foot muscles. Yeah. And we try to, uh, our exercises try to target more the foot than the ankle, you know, segments, even if obviously some exercises involve, uh, jumping and so on, but yeah, it's, it's much more foot oriented than plantar flexion oriented. Yeah. Do you feel like that um that's kind of where a lot of the lower leg like strength and performance is kind of going into more or at least a lot of it's going more into intrinsic foot strength uh more so now? I don't know if it's a trend or whatever but uh, all I know is that if you take the entire, you know, strength literature and practice related to locomotion type of sports, I think the foot and the ankle was the like the the you know the forgotten uh, piece of the puzzle uh, compared to, you know, hips, 
or knees. Mm -hmm. uh, if you compile the, the amount of literature and the amount of you know practice around the, the different joints in the lower limb system, definitely the foot and ankle is a, is, is, is a, there's a field of, of, of research and practice to develop. It, I think my feeling is that I was an athlete and, and an athlete and a track and field coach. My, my gut feeling was that, yeah, we, we thought it was, you know, there, it's there. We don't need to specifically focus on that because we are always, you know, exercising on our feet and so on. But no, it's, it's there, but you need also to focus on it uh, specifically. Yeah, it definitely is. I, it definitely is possible to do a lot of lower leg training and miss the intrinsic foot. Like a lot of athletes will not get the same effect that others will, for sure. Totally. So, and because you're, because you're always pushing on your feet and you, 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 they are stimulated. The problem is that they are, you know, just the, in the passenger seat of the, of the training car. Let's have this, this analogy. You need to focus on them driving sometimes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Without question. I know that's been a huge part of my own journey in the last, like, well, really 10, but especially in the last five years. And, um, you know, I was going to add um, the, in finishing this up, I was going to ask you, Chris, about the ACL link. Uh, but as right before we get to that, I actually saw this note and I wanted to get to this note just in light of 3D. I forgot to mention it. Uh, JB, you had mentioned trunk rotation as an injury risk. So that, I just couldn't help but think of that and how that might play into some of the 3D pieces or just rotational pieces. Um, I was going to ask you if you wanted to go into that a little bit more, like the trunk rotation. You mentioned forward trunk lean, but I hadn't heard much about the trunk rotation in that aspects of the, the running injury and the hamstring strains and things like that. Chris? Yeah, I mean, I'm more than happy to go, go in a little bit of that. Um, I think we, we focused a lot on like specific patterns of forward lean, pelvic tiller, or anything, uh, and, and things like that. But the trunk rotation for me as well is if you think of the anatomical links between those tissues uh, across the trunk and how they connect into the hamstring, well, particularly how they connect into the pelvis, the sacroiliac joint, and to the hamstrings, if you have altered or excessive trunk rotation you're going to start to wind up these fascial tissues that all connect and interact between one another so first of all you're going to start to then increase the strain on those tissues in that that, that lower limb and from a practical standpoint if you were to like just do a normal hamstring tissue stretch and then adding tr your own trunk rotation you know towards that side you feel the strain and the, the stress go right up so it increases the fascial stress on those particular tissues. And then again, if you look at back at some of the modeling work from Elizabeth Tumanoff, they, they found in particular that the oblique musculature has a direct influence on reducing hamstring strain. So what this is in, in effect, my interpretation of this is the better functioning oblique musculature, the more controlled your trunk rotation and therefore the less fascial strain and the less tissue strain you get applied to your hamstrings. So that's one of the things that we always assess and look at with people. And if I'm doing that from a 2D perspective, one of the simple cues that we've started to say to practitioners to look for is if you see athletes who have big arm movements, and if you're, you know, big exaggerated arm movements, and if you're looking from the side, one of my cues is you're looking from the side and you can see the opposite armpit, they've got poor trunk rotational control. And that's likely to influence that, that tissue stress and strain. And um, we see it across multiple injuries as well. Like, you know, as soon as you stand on one leg and hit the ground and that force is going through the limb, that torsional control at the, the upper body is going to have a direct influence on the force distribution at the lower limb. So we see it in chronic shin injuries, 
Achilles injuries, foot injuries. It, it's a a real big thing that we I think we should consider really. It's yeah, quite easy. My experience is that you see this lack of torsional control even in some athletes with very high numbers of you know mm. lower limb strength. You have very good squatters, very good people at the press. You do some you know torsional rotation control tests, clinical tests, very basic tests, and you see, wow, whoa, there is something missing. So yeah, you need to assess that, yeah. You know, on that, like further to add to that, one of the big things that we, we see is like, even when we, when we assess players, you can have people come in and they have like the most defined abdominal musculature. Mm -hmm. They can hold planks for the longest time you've ever seen, yet dynamically you, you watch them move and they can't control rotation at all. So there's a, this big piece in that puzzle, that static based training and the old, you know, McGill type approach is great mm -hmm. for physical conditioning, but does not necessarily yeah. transfer to the dynamic movement. Um, and I always think that's a big piece of the puzzle that's missing is like how we train an athlete's ability to control trunk movements in dynamic, fast paced tasks. Yeah. The, the obliques thing is so key, I feel, because as I've become more attuned to rotational running, incorporating that in training programs and things like that, as well as even just uh, like using the Lila Exogen, which is like the little microweights, which I use myself. I'll do different setups where I'll have it kind of spiral and make my shoulders and legs kind of spin opposite more. It, it, it increases that spiral. And I feel the muscle working the most to try to fight over rotating is the obliques. Like it's like the only time I feel like, man, I really feel my obliques firing up, but it feels good because at the same time, my glutes are like kicking harder because they're really linked together. And I, it is like I, in watching and coaching um, club track, like with youth, I see, I saw this a lot. I, I saw a lot of kids like ages eight to 14 who actually ran very well. But then you'd see for every one kid who ran very well, you'd see another kid whose trunk just wasn't connected. And like it, it fits with what you said, the overstriding, like, like back to like the timing and, and is the body connected and timed up. And I'd, I'd also get kids who, as opposed to maybe what you said, you get those kids with the long straight arms, but you'd also get kids who almost had arms the other way that were too tight, but then they made up for it by every, the elbows just went back and forth. I'm demonstrating this on the screen. No one can see it, but people will probably see it. Where it's like, you can almost go both ways. I've seen with younger athletes, a, a big tendency to almost ball the arms up too much and then just kind of like, and then over rotate like that versus that balance between the shoulder axis and the hip axis that can work in that timed unit. I'm glad you mentioned that because I think that is, you know, it, with the complexity of 3D, I do think that's a piece that's pretty that still can be a little macro. It could still be relatively understandable um, just in observation. So I'm glad, glad I got back to that rotation piece of the trunk. Yeah, I think there's a lot that you can um, get from visual observations if you know what specific parameters that you want to look for. And I, I think it's key for people to um, remember as well, like there's a strong interdependence between different mechanical parameters. Um, so what I always say is like if you, you know, one mechanical parameter that you do wrong might have a knock-on effect for subsequent others. So, you know, you brought it back to the overstride, but if you think if you overstride to continue to move mm -hmm. forward, well, first of all, you're landing with your pelvis already rotated away from that limb. And so you're going to have to spin that pelvis towards the limb to keep forward progression. Um, so sometimes, it, and vice versa, you know, if you rotate in excessively, that can influence where you put the limbs on the ground. So I think there's some... Uh, mechanical parameters that can be easily visualized and i think it's important to try and you know try a variety of different cues and, and target your focus to to these different parameters because they 
if, if you improve trunk rotation, you might have a, a, a beneficial effect lower down. Same as if you improve sagittal plane mechanics in terms of getting the foot underneath the hips, you might improve the rotation on the top. Um, yeah, and, and all, all these muscles we are talking about have a common point. They have a pub where they all gather and meet. It's the pelvic bone, which means that uh, all the muscles' actions influence through their attachment to the pelvic bone, the pelvic bone motion itself, you know, positively, negatively, and so indirectly, the hamstrings, because they also attach proximally to the pelvic bone. And so it's like, a, you know, a, a turning point there. Yeah, with what you were saying, JB, and then Chris, you mentioned like that, if you over rotate, it makes me think of like the fascial or the Aldoa stretching that you do, and you feel as you twist more, you feel the whole line just get and I mean, in some ways, it's a good thing because your body's interconnected and it can manage and mitigate stress. But if it it also makes you think, yeah, if I turn too much too fast, it almost makes me I, I don't want to try this, but to go and sprint and I'll intentionally like just go, you know, crazy with my shoulders to see how feel. <laughs> probably not good, but interesting, um, you know, that that we have many, it. you know, now with the development of our in-game videos, we have some now some studies checking the mechanisms of injuries during games. And uh, we have many, many examples of slow motion videos of players, you know, running fast and getting a trunk, an excessive trunk rotation due to an opponent grabbing oh, yeah. their shoulder and so on. And uh, that's, that's, a, that's a very high level of tension on the opposite side. So, Yeah, it makes me think even as well, I've seen this in some of the Franz Bosch, um, like rugby players doing this where they would run, they're like running over maybe mini hurdles and they're I don't know if they're holding a ball. Maybe they are, but they're leaning to the side while they do it as well as like a robust running protocol. So it also makes me think about that maybe as a chance to also build a little bit of multi, like you're stressing your hamstring now in a different way in a controlled environment where you're not like, you know, running into people and stuff like that. So it also makes me think about how that could be a positive as well for not just, I mean, being able to run in turn, but also maybe the resiliency that comes behind it as well or comes with that. Agree. Uh, but I think that's, uh, that's, I know our time's running out today for the show. Uh, do you guys have any, uh, any closing questions, any studies you're working on that are coming out soon that you want to direct people towards or, or any closing thoughts today? Um, yeah, so some studies coming up with, uh, with uh, Jordan Mengucci as the, as the main author. On the, it's very cool because his science goes from cadaver preparations to test you know, the link between the pelvic position and the hamstring strain to football players playing football and estimating their kinematics and, 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 and straining the muscles during football plays. And uh, I think that's, to me, that's the, the most exciting part of things coming up. Yeah, we've got, um, hopefully this will get through the second round of reviews at the moment, but sprint mechanics assessment score will hopefully be, be coming out nicely soon, um, as well as we've also got some... Um, uh, novel methods of, uh, of soleus muscle force strength testing and on force plates led by um, uh, Dr. John McMahon. Um, so yeah, a couple of different things on assessment sprint mechanics and assessment on force plate uh, based uh, tests. So keep an eye out for those. Yeah, that sounds good. Uh, well, awesome. Well, thank you so much, guys. It was, it was wonderful talking to you. I learned a lot and um, I'm looking forward to getting the show going. So uh, thanks, Chris and JB. I appreciate your time. As always. Yeah, you're welcome. Nice to nice to catch up with you both. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the podcast. I'll see you next week.